You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring our February 2023 issue of the Journal. In this podcast, I'll talk about some of the feature articles covered in the Journal this month, and we'll have a short author interview with the author of one of our features. I'd like to start, though, by talking about the value of our peer reviewers, and that's what's covered in our editorial this month. You know, we really want to recognize our expert peer reviewers. They've given their time and talent to keeping our publication, one that healthcare providers from every discipline seek out for original science as well as clinical and educational innovations. We rely on our peer reviewers to point out flaws in thinking, research design, and writing in a thoughtful and helpful way. And this builds better writers, one of the primary goals of our journal. We should all remember to pay it forward. If you're a writer, you need peer reviewers. So when you're asked to review, please accept the invitation. You'll gain a whole new appreciation for how critically reading and peer reviewing can improve your own writing. So if you're currently one of our peer reviewers, thank you. If you're not, feel free to contact me and I'll put you on our reviewer panel. Let's talk about a few of our featured studies this month, and those include quantitative and qualitative research studies, as well as three education features. And we'll talk about all of those as well as have a short author interview. The first study I want to mention is by Susan Watkins and her colleagues, and it's called Effects of Medicare Wellness Visits on Health Promotion Outcomes. Well, did you ever wonder whether Medicare wellness visits are actually impacting patients' health outcomes? That's what this group of authors wanted to know. They recognize that the American older adult population has the highest historical prevalence of chronic disease, and it underuses wellness visit benefits. Little is known about how Medicare wellness visits affect health outcomes. So they did a retrospective case control study to examine how Medicare wellness visits affected outcomes by measuring two kinds of data for a case group and a control group. And these included measures at baseline and 15 months in. They looked at blood pressure, fasting lipids, and glucose levels. And they looked at the completion frequencies for seven screenings as well as vaccinations. While the authors concluded that Medicare wellness visits do not consistently positively impact measurable health outcomes in these patients, and they recommended that additional research controlling for more variables is warranted to better understand how these visits can better affect health outcomes. Our next featured study is a qualitative research study, and it's by Chandra Spate and colleagues. It's titled, Barriers and Facilitators to Nurse Practitioner Buprenorphine Prescribing for Opioid Use Disorder in Primary Care Settings. And this group of authors noticed that increasing access to opioid use disorder treatment is critical to curbing the opioid epidemic, particularly for rural residents who experience a lot of health and healthcare disparities. So the authors did a qualitative study involving interviews with nurse practitioners working in primary care settings to explore the barriers and facilitators to buprenorphine and naloxone prescribing among these nurse practitioners. Their analysis found that there were prescribing barriers related to opioid use disorder stigma, the perceived knowledge, federal and state regulations, and prescribing resources. 
and they found facilitators related to adopting a person-centered approach, developing prescriber skills, and access to prescribing resources. Conclusions were that barriers and facilitators that nurse practitioners experience related to buprenorphine prescribing for opioid use disorder are similar to those faced by physicians, although the barriers arguably are more profound. Future research should consider how to mitigate these prescribing barriers to facilitate nurse practitioner buprenorphine prescribing for opioid use disorder. Our next featured study is also a qualitative research piece, and it's by Natalie Ortiz-Pate and her colleagues. It's titled, Physician Assistant and Nurse Practitioner Onboarding in Primary Care, the Participant Perspective. And I'd like to mention that this article is being jointly featured in the Journal of the American Association of Physician Associates. There are times that we use joint publications together when the topic is relevant to both of our roles. So in this case, the authors found that many new graduate primary care physician assistants and nurse practitioners can experience stress and difficulty as they transition to practice, and feelings of anxiety and role ambiguity are very common. So the authors wanted to describe new graduate PA and NP perspectives of onboarding programs that they completed in their first primary care position. So they did some semi-structured interviews with people that had participated in onboarding programs. And their analyses revealed nine themes or concepts that related to the experiences that newly onboarded NPs and PAs were having, and that these occurred within two frameworks. One was the structural components that they were dealing with, and then the other one was psychosocial factors. And their conclusions were that understanding participants' experiences with onboarding programs is really essential to ensure successful transition to practice. Now, before we get into our educational innovations, I'd like to talk about one more research study, and this is by Tiffany Trent and a big interdisciplinary group of her colleagues. It's titled, Pupillary Light Reflex Measured with Quantitative Pupillometry Has Low Sensitivity and High Specificity for Predicting Neuroworsening After Traumatic Brain Injury. Here's some background. Triage and neurological assessment of the 1.7 million traumatic brain injuries occurring annually is often done in the emergency department. Subjective assessments such as the neurological examination that includes evaluation of the pupillary light reflex can contain bias, but quantitative pupillometry standardizes and objectifies the pupillary light reflex exam. Additional data are needed to determine whether quantitative pupillometry can predict neurological changes in a traumatic brain injury patient. So this study examined the effectiveness of quantitative pupillometry in predicting neurological decline within 24 hours of admission following acute traumatic brain injury. The authors had 95 participants that they included in their analysis and 35 experienced neuroworsening defined by changes in their Glasgow Coma Scale. There was a significant association between an abnormal neurological pupil index and neuroworsening. The authors found that there is a strong association between abnormal neurological pupil index and neuroworsening in the sample of traumatic brain injury patients. Implications are that neurological pupil index may be an early indicator of neurological changes within 24 hours of emergency department admission in patients with traumatic brain injury. Now we'll move on to our education features, and the first one is by Katherine Evans-Kreider, and it's titled, Comparing Satisfaction and Outcomes in On-Campus Versus Virtual Education for Nurse Practitioner Students. 
This article highlights the development and implementation of interactive training experiences for graduate nursing students as part of their specialty training in endocrinology. There was an emphasis placed on accomplishing a shift from on-campus to virtual training while maintaining the fidelity of the experience as well as student satisfaction. A total of 106 graduate nursing students from five cohorts submitted evaluations of the program, and student satisfaction remained high regardless of whether the content was delivered in person or virtually. Most students in the virtual cohorts evaluated the online training positively. Student presentation grades were highest with on-campus delivery. Transitioning in-person training to a virtual environment can be an effective method of delivering nurse practitioner education while promoting student satisfaction. And the author made recommendations for optimizing hybrid learning experiences based on adult learning principles. The last study I'd like to mention before our author interview is by Angela Golden and colleagues, and it's titled Promoting a Culture of Reciprocity to Build Social Capital in Advanced Practice Nursing Students. These authors designed a virtual activity integrating the evidence-based reciprocity ring model to enhance confidence and skills for building social capital for advanced practice nursing students. The central objective of the activity was to reduce the stigma of asking for help by providing a framework for the balanced exchange of favors, thus supporting new connections as well as feelings of trust among students. So students from two advanced practice nursing tracks participated in a virtual reciprocity ring activity where they could post and respond to requests for help. On average, students posted 25 requests and received three offers for assistance. 220 connections were made overall with the major theme requests related to stress management. They then did a retrospective survey at the conclusion of the activity, and questions inquired about student confidence before and after the activity. Student mean confidence scores were significantly higher after the activity compared to prior to it. Additionally, the effect size was large. Therefore, the author suggested that integrating this reciprocity ring exercise into nursing curricula and practice could be a useful tool for promoting skills related to productive help-seeking that will support nurse practitioner students' academic and professional success. Our guest today is Dr. Marianne Fingerhood, and she's an assistant professor and coordinator of the Adult Gero Primary Care Program at Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. She's been a nurse for 37 years, 24 years as a nurse practitioner, and has been a preceptor for 22 years. So she considers herself a clinician who kind of got into academia. She and her co-authors wrote a feature in this issue that's titled Competency-Based Evaluation, Collaboration and Consistency from Academia to Practice. In the article, the authors talk about how competency-based evaluation is not a new concept in nursing education and the essentials, core competencies for professional nursing education, which we call the ANCC Essentials, which was updated in 2021, and the NOMF Nurse Practitioner Role Core Competencies from 2022 have, of course, provided us all with the most recent roadmap for curriculum development and student evaluation. So using these two national guidelines and the standards for quality nurse practitioner education from 2022, the authors examined ways to unify the curriculum and competency in clinical practice. Through a review of the available literature, the lack of standardization in evaluating competencies was evident, as we all know. 
So a framework for evaluation was developed, including concepts from other healthcare discipline competency models. The article presents the resulting evaluation of a tool that was used across academia and practice. Clinical preceptors, being an extension of the faculty, play a very significant role in developing practice competencies in advanced practice nursing students. Providing preceptors with a comprehensive framework derived from the already existing prime model and used with simulated patients allows for the evaluation of clinical competencies in a variety of clinical settings, and consistency of evaluation of cross-settings assures the attainment of the competencies necessary to perform safely and effectively in the practice environment. So Marianne, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Kim. Well, I was very excited to get this article, and I wanted to talk to you about some of the things that went into it. And I wanted to start with kind of what was your initial motivation for undertaking? This was such a big effort to develop this framework. And I want to hear about what you and your co-authors thought in terms of uh, getting into this and why you felt it was important. Well, as, as you mentioned, I have been a preceptor for the last 22 years academia just for the last 12. So I'm truly a clinician that has made those steps into um, more educational focus. I look at what we are now teaching in the academic setting and how we are evaluating in the academic setting and really wanted to make sure that we are doing the same evaluation in where most of our students are actually gathering their clinical competencies are actually out in the precepted environment. So we wanted to make sure that what we were evaluating in our OSCEs, in our simulated environment, was the same thing that we were evaluating by the same criteria in the clinical setting. We don't have the ability to see our students all the time as they interact with patients. We really rely on our preceptors as an extension of the faculty, and we wanted to make sure that there was congruency between what we were doing in the classroom and our evaluations with what was going on with our preceptors. I know, and that is so important, speaking as a faculty member myself, knowing what is going on with students is a big concern among a lot of faculty. And we all want to make sure that our students are achieving these competency goals that we have. But it's so true that what you're thinking in your own mind as achievement of competency may not be the same thing that the preceptor has in mind. So can you talk about that a little bit? What is the definition of competency that has been established? What are we all talking about when we say competency? We think of competency as that integration of knowledge. The American Nurses Association actually defined competency as an expected level of performance, integrating knowledge, skills, ability, and judgment. So it's not just the knowing, it's the actual applying and integrating those skills. So we can be wonderful at teaching our students in the academic setting, but their ability to to take that knowledge and integrate it into decision-making and different skills and different abilities within the clinical environment is really where the important learning is done. Yeah, good point. And uh, that, that leads me to all of these guidelines and organizations and agencies, right, that get involved in these things. And so we're all very curious about where some of these guidelines and frameworks come from. And I wanted you to maybe just discuss for a minute the relationship between those AAC and essentials, the NOMF core competencies, and that prime model. Can you talk to us about that? 
So the AACN Essentials have really been our academic roadmap for a very long period of time. The new ones that just came out in 2021 not only look at the entry level of nursing, but also the advanced practice and really looking at the progression between an entry level nurse and an advanced practice nurse, building on those competencies. The really lovely thing about the new NOMF uh, core competencies for nurse practitioners is it really integrated so well what the AACN essentials were saying for advanced practice nursing and almost gave it a more clinically based, integrated kind of a feel to it. So when we were looking at curriculum, we were really looking at the AACN essentials. But as we were looking at how we were going to apply them in the clinical setting, really those NOMF core competencies were incredibly helpful. Now we look at how do we integrate the PRIME model? Well, the PRIME model is actually, PRIME stands for professional, um, reporter, interpreter, manager and evaluator or educator. And if you look at the way that the core competencies are set up, it really does integrate with those things. And when we looked at, are we really um, fulfilling those needs of those um, of both the, the core competencies and the essentials, when we looked at the prime model, how were they fitting into those different domains that were within each one of them? So it was it was actually a way to further document or support what we were doing with the use of prime and i think that it was very very good at integrating all of those things so you've essentially taken these well-known long-standing academic essentials from aacn and their related not core competencies at the application level and then use them to to fit into the prime model is that essentially what you're saying? Yes, and it actually is more um, validating a lot of the things that we did with the prime model to be able to say that, yes, we're actually evaluating or making sure that our students are, are meeting those really essential core competencies. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Now, let's get down to the meat of this, which is your framework. And I'm really interested in hearing that, and I know our readers are too. Can you talk a little bit about the framework that you developed and its utility with preceptors? So the the prime model actually was um, established with another group of esteemed colleagues of mine. We really set it up initially to be able to use in our OSCEs or simulated environment. But we were looking at the fact that it needed to be congruent with the way that we were doing it in um, our actual clinical settings. One of the things that we're actually doing now is doing some education with our preceptors. It's one thing to give them an evaluation tool. It's something completely different for them to understand how to use it. Uh, and I think that that is many times where the disconnect happens that we have students um, that are in a clinical setting. We have a preceptor that may be a physician, may be a nurse practitioner, and they're looking at it going, I'm not exactly sure how to adequately um, evaluate the student. So education for the preceptors. And that actually came along with the, the checklist for faculty and uh, preceptors that NOMF sent out last year and making sure that we are educating our preceptors so they can adequately evaluate our students. 
Wonderful. And I know you guys have been working on this for some time now, and it has probably been through multiple cycles with uh, preceptors and implementation. So I'm wondering what you're finding. Are you finding really measurable improvements in and comfort level between the faculty and the preceptors and, and their communication with how these students are actually performing? Well, I think that anytime you you sort of build a new model, there's going to be iterations of it. And the most recent one, um, because our students have five clinical semesters, they start out at a much more basic level. And initially, all of our evaluation tools were exactly the same. And what we've done is we've really leveled our evaluation tools. So the expectations for students in a first clinical semester are very different than those expectations or ability to achieve those core competencies is different in the fifth. So that was one of the big changes that we've made um, with this evaluation tool over time. And it's been really lovely because we've had many preceptors who started out in a first or second semester with a student and have been able to follow them through third, fourth, or fifth, and have been able to see sort of the method to our madness for how we were um, leveling our students as we move forward. Um, so I think that that's been probably the most important thing that we've learned is that an evaluation for a first semester student is very different than evaluation for a final semester student. Well, this is great stuff. And I'm so happy that you guys took the time and trouble to sit down and write this up so that other people can also benefit from it. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to really speak to something that is, is uh, quite a passion of mine. And thanks to all of our listeners. Be sure to look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Thank you.